I plan to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. Are you ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world? Then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing rags to riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires. Many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school. And with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. Let's start right there, man. Let's uh, sure. tell us about your upbringing, Chris, and uh, who made you who you are uh, today? Who made you the, the, the business-minded guy, the entrepreneur that you are today? Sure. Well, I don't know if it's a function. You know, I understand the philosophy of like who made you or anything else. But, you know, one of my first things that I remember was from a a very young age, extremely young. One of my first memories uh, was literally going door to door selling burpee seeds. I don't even know if they're still around. Uh, but I remember it was a little ad in a comic book that I sent a couple bucks away from, or maybe my mom or somebody helped me do so. And I remember getting this whole box of burpee seeds that you would sell door to door. And, you know, it originally started from there, from actually selling and, and going door to door and dealing with all that stuff from a very young age. And, you know, that teaches how, how you. Old were you. How old were you then, Chris? Six years old. Six years old. Whoa. I remember it to this day. I remember it black and white. I mean, it's crystal clear. That's amazing. Yeah, so. That's interesting. That's cool. All right, so six years old, and then you earn some money, and you and you got the you've got the uh, the fever. Huh? Oh, absolutely. I mean, once you start doing it and you start realizing, oh my gosh, you know, and, and I'm, you know, in hindsight is 2020, looking at through adult eyes and kids' eyes is another thing. But back then it was like just having money. I mean, it was interesting having money. Uh, I grew up in a household where there are a ton of kids. You know, there were six, seven, eight people uh, in this mixed household, uh, you know, two divorcees getting together. Uh, kind of like, as I said, the Brady Bunch, but an evil Brady Bunch. So, you know, having to stand out from the noise of everything and, and just taking almost in a way your your own actions, that's really what I did as a kid. And, and I've done it ever since. It wasn't something I think that I necessarily learned per se. Maybe it's DNA. You know, maybe you are in certain respects born with it, but also maybe it's just, you know, you do it once at an early age and you just continually do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 habit forming, right? If 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 you're doing something because you're, you're you're motivated to do it on a daily basis or a weekly basis, whatever, it becomes a habit, and and you can be doing the same thing sixty or something like it sixty years later, maybe a, maybe a different product, a different door to knock on, but. Sure. 
pretty but, cool. But it's a function, I think, seeing results. You know, the, the good thing about doing something like that at a young age is you see results pretty damn quickly. It's not, you know, this very, very long time horizon of building stuff up, but in a way it teaches you or lays the groundwork for the delayed gratification, you know, for the future. You know, it teaches you that, hey, not everybody is nice when you open a door. It teaches you that, hey, not many of those doors open up to begin with. It teaches you, hey, do you just keep knocking on the doors and keep going, you know? It teaches you that, hey, maybe you don't need somebody next to you doing it. You just go do it, you know? Yeah. What's, uh, what, what do you attribute uh, your, uh, your, your success to back then? When you think of success back then, maybe it was one sale and 50 doors you knocked on, right? And, and, and Oh, yeah. Did that motivate, what motivated you at first to say, wow, this is working. I can continue to do it, I, you know? I, I think it was just a cool thing to do. First of all, no one was doing it. You know, nobody at, at that age was doing it. I like doing things that other people haven't. And maybe it comes from then and there, you know, that point in time. Uh, but really just the act of going out there, trying it, seeing, being handed money. I mean, my God, for something, you know, way more than what you did. And, and you know, I didn't understand arbitrage or, you know, buying something at one price and selling it at another. I just remember, all right, we sent a couple bucks and now I've got more bucks. That, that was a great thing to have, you know, and that's the fundamental basics of, of business at the very, you know, beginning stage. And that, that's just a, ground, a good groundwork, a good laying of the foundation at a beginning stage. And even to this day, um, my kids, each of them have done it without being shown it. They, each of them have done it. So I come home one day and my six-year-old is out selling a certain type of sand design that he did. And I'm like, what you doing? And he's like, oh, I made these and I'm selling them. And he's out on a table selling them himself. I didn't, I didn't show him how to do that. I didn't tell him how to do it. So who knows? You know, I like it when they do it themselves. But, but you know, the cool thing is the storytelling you probably used up till the time you're six years old and still, still today, you continue to tell, if you continue to tell your kids stories, you don't have to tell them what to do. They, they, they actually, you know, attach to some of the stories and it becomes their, their, their mindset, right? And Absolutely. It sounds like the little of that happened probably because six years old is not a common time to go knocking on doors, man. That's, that's unreal. It's amazing. Yeah, and, and, I, and I kid you not, and I never told my kids, hey, I used to knock doors at, you know, when I was six years old. Afterwards, I've told them now, because I'm like shocked there. I'm like, okay, well, is that one of those things that, again, is it genetic? Is it not? Who the hell knows? But they've literally done that. They've each done their own businesses. They've each done their own things. It's kind of crazy. How old are your kids now? 11, 8, and 6. 11, 8, young. and 6. Wow. And, and then uh, what? All boys, all boys, Gary. My wife hates me. <laughs> Okay, so then, so, so what was your, what, what did you do as a young kid all the way up until, you know, did you go to you know, college or whatever it was, through high school? Did you, did you have jobs then? What did they look like then? Oh, yeah. First job, I mean, if you count stuff like washing dogs and stuff like that, I always did that at an earlier age, you know, those types of things. For, I, I actually had a business before college uh, cleaning out toilets at gas stations. That was kind of interesting. You'll learn a lot about doing that. Nobody wants to do that stuff. Uh, so you have a ready-made model at any time. Even to this day, nobody wants to do that. Uh, I'm sure you can still make money doing that. Uh, so, you know, you get your hands dirty quite literally and figuratively, you know, and that's how you start going, you know. But my first real job where you're paying taxes on it was Arby's. I remember Arby's when I was 15. I worked at Arby's, the front end, uh, working the register. And how, I mean, how cool is that? I mean, people don't, I don't believe, you know, kids often or always, I should say, have gratitude for that job at, at an Arby's, McDonald's, Burger King, whatever. You have these amazing franchises that have grown, you know, nationally and sometimes globally, right? 
to be these these, uh, these these places where you can learn so many things and you know, do, you know exchange of money and service and, and duplication of a, of, a, of a service right um, so many things you can learn in those atmospheres and that some, some very often I think kids uh, don't have the gratitude in those jobs they, they, they could have and if they do have it man they can take that that, that mindset of learning you know do all these things we talk you know duplication and exchange and uh, of money and services I mean to, to a whole other level, as you did. Oh, right? definitely. And, and, and if anything, it's a great, again, grounding for education. You see the processes, you see the workflows. More importantly, you get to work with people that are not necessarily like yourself. So you get exposure to all different personality types. And I think that's even you know more valuable than just the basic of, uh, basics of business is that the interactions with the people is invaluable. It teaches you how to get along with all different types, all different age groups, everything else. I mean, to this day, I, I remember meeting a woman that we call the lipstick lady. And, you know, most of the people in a certain way referred to her almost in a way, in a denigrating way, in a, in a bad way. And it was this woman that, that maybe wasn't all there, you know, much older. She used to get a ride there. And, you know, once a week, we'd see the lipstick lady come in and, you know, she'd order. And I just remember, you know, even at that age, you know, thinking that, you know, this person is spending their money. They should be treated like they're golden, no matter who they are and where they come from. Uh, and you have to make that extra effort with them. And I remember that to this day. I don't know if you can see it on a podcast, but I'm getting goosebumps talking about Lipstick Lady because that was one of the first instances where, okay, you have to put yourself out there in such a way where maybe other people are kind of mocking this person behind her back, but it's just not right. She literally has paid money for you. She's a customer. Go out of your way for her. you know. And, and the lipstick was kind of all over because she wasn't necessarily all there. But this was her, her, her once a week thing that was a gift to herself, you know, mm -hmm. and she deserved that oh, gift. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and then what, what was next? So that was through high school that you did the Arby's thing? Oh, sure. And then, uh, let's see, I graduated high school early. Uh, I ended up going ahead and my brother was at a uh, physicist, studying physics, uh, physics at Berkeley. And before I ended up going out there, I decided to go out to Berkeley before I ended up going to NYU. And at Berkeley, I had arranged a job for the Pacific Stock Exchange to be what's called a runner, uh, where you would run tickets back and forth before it became automated. And the second I got off the plane, I picked up a copy of the San Francisco Chronicle. It used to be green, the business section. I don't know if it is anymore. Uh, and I realized, I saw right on the front page, it said Pacific Stock Exchange recapitalizes. And uh, that job didn't exist that I flew out there for, which was interesting. So I ended up painting houses on the side of, uh, in the Berkeley Hills. I don't know if you've ever been to Berkeley, California, but they have the houses on the side of these cliffs and hills where you pull up to the house and you're literally at the roof. And so I was painting houses on the back of uh, the house for quite a while, uh, as during earthquakes when you're hanging from house hooks and it swings, which is very interesting, uh, very interesting. That sounds cool. And and, and, and again, what, what lessons did you learn there? I mean, I, I think about, you know, same with me, paving driveways early on, steel coating paving yeah. driveways. I, I, my, a lot of, I don't know if you can say the word shit on your show, so if not, bleep me out, all right? Uh, but hey, wait, I deal with, well, hey, wait, wait. As long as you don't shit on our show, we're okay with it. Well, well there you go. I would never do that. But when, when it comes to shit, and I say this with love, okay, I, I've learned repeatedly over the course of, of my businesses to do the shit. So whether it was cleaning the shit out of toilets, literally, or when I was painting houses, 
I was the one that cleaned the guano in the prep when birds would be, you know, in a house or whatever, quite literally cleaning bird shit out. You know, you learn, you learn to work and you learn that you go through these phases and you do the shit regardless of whether you want to do it or not. And that's what ends up getting the momentum and gets you to where you need to go. It's not a function of doing the pretty. Nobody says do the pretty. You know? Okay. All right. So I got to tell you my story about feces quite really quickly. Uh, two different experiences. <laughs> Number one, when I was about 14, 15, I was in the ditch. My dad did sewer hookups around our community where they yeah. were septics and they went to sewer. So my dad went out and bought a backhoe. He was a landscaping guy and he had worked in a factory. He did all kinds of odd jobs for money and he bought a backhoe and started doing sewer hookups. I was his, his, ground, his ground guy in the hole, right? And these holes would get to be, you know, anywhere from five to 20 feet deep. And the, and the ground around these holes was like, it was really bad soil. So it was like peat moss and sands and stuff like that. So I'd be down there trying to hook up this pipe in the, in the shit, right? In the, in yeah. the human species, right? And, and, and it'd just be like around my feet most of the time because I did, we'd, he'd dig a hole for me where it'd seep around my feet. Um, but once in a while, I'm trying to put that, hook that pipe up and the walls collapse and all just splatters up in my face and my mouth. I mean, it's crazy. Everywhere. Right? but I believe I'm healthier today for it, right? I, I bet. I believe, I believe that my immune system's stronger from that, the, the feces that actually, you know, I, I ingested. Um, not, not that I would recommend the job for anybody to be done that fashion, but, you know, it is what it is. So, yeah, but I 100% agree. But, but, that's, but that's not just like a, a shit or immune story, immunity. That's a life story. I, I don't, that's not BS, literally. It, it's something when you deal with shit, it makes you stronger. It just does. Okay, so my, my, last, one, my last story about shit, since we're talking about it, is when, when growing up, we had four older sisters, my brother and I. My dad was, you know, total hillbilly and, and didn't believe that you should use your septic so much because it's, you know, it, it's, it's, you don't want to use it too much because it could fell if you use a septic too much. So it was above 60 degrees. We, we used to go out to, the, number one, we'd go on the trees in our narrow 50-foot wide yard. Yep. Four, four flat on one side, two flat on the other side. Got it. If it was warm enough, it was 60 degrees or more. We'd also have to bathe in the in this in this in, infest this poop infested <laughs> water that we, we live near, and, uh, and and we moved at one point to a place where we had a creek along our property line. And my dad said, "Okay, you guys, uh, we, I got to borrow soap at the at the creek, and you guys can do your best down there, right?" Sure. I, I grew so, up in Ohio, by the way, so just I, I actually know the story in parallel. So please go. So this is this <laughs> northern Illinois. And, uh, and this creek seemed a little cleaner than that, that pond that we, we bathed in before with the ivory soap and the swab sure. shampoo. But, but uh, it, you know, because the water ran, it, it was one running water all the time. It was only two foot to three foot deep usually, but a sand bottom. So it was a little cleaner bottom. Was, was sure. much, but, but about uh, two months in, super hot day, we saw these big clumps of something floating by us, right? And my younger brother, my younger brother, I was at the time 15 and he was like 13 at the time. My younger brother says, Gary, Gary, that looks like shit floating down the creek. And I, and I said, what are you talking about? He goes, look at these clumps. He's pointing at them, and we're looking at them floating down the creek. And, and I said, man, that does kind of look like big, big poop, man. And, and, and so, uh, so we go up to – we, we stomp up the 100 yards to my, to my dad to the house. This is the weekend on a Sunday. We stomp up there, and, I, and I, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the older one. So I said, Dad, we're not bathing in that creek anymore. There's, there's poop floating down the creek, right? And he goes, oh, come on. He follows us down to the creek, and he looks at the, the stuff floating down the creek. He looks up the creek and sees like a, 
a ledge of, of peat moss on the banks, right? He goes, that's not, that's not poop. He goes, that's just peat moss sure. floating down the creek. That's all that is. Don't be such sissies. Get out there and, and, and take your bass. So we did that. Four years later, we do a canoe trip. My dad comes with. I'm with my buddies. We do a canoe trip. And we're about uh, a mile upstream of our, of our place, and there's right. this farm. And uh, I turn a corner. I'm competitive, so I'm leaving the group, right? There's four of us. My dad is two, two canoes behind us, and we turn this corner, and there's 100 heads of cows in the, in the creek, 100 heads, oh I'm telling you, God. at least. So I'm only thinking about how I'm going to get around these big beasts in the creek, right? Yeah. So next to them, trying to get around them, right? Maneuvering around them, and all of a sudden, <laughs> like grenades, like grenades going off around us. They're, they're, they're exiting, right? Number two is everywhere. And then sure. all of a sudden, like racehorses, right? They're peeing like racing. So anyway, all around us is this stuff. And I'm like, I look back at my dad and I said, Dad, well, this is four years later. I said, Dad, we told you that was crap. <laughs> the creek all those years. And he goes, he looks around, he looks at what's going on. He goes, boy, I guess you're right. There you go. <laughs> I, I swear my brother and I, I mean, knock on wood, we just don't get sick very easily at all. And uh, I think some of it's attributed to that. <laughs> I bet. It's not one of those things you say to people, hey, go take a bath in a shit creek. But at the same time, it works. Why not? <laughs> so so <laughs> that's a great subject. I, I, I'm glad you went there. Tell us, tell us, uh, <laughs> tell us what's next in your life. What, 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 tell us what, what, what I'm next in your life. Well, well, no, I can see the subject heading right now. Just any word where you put the shit in. I mean, it's going to sell. You'll get the views. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so where did I go from there? Let's see. I uh, went from there to NYU. Uh, got dropped off at the curb uh, at NYU. I went ahead and at that time joined a company uh, called Oppenheimer, which is obviously still around. I became what's called a cold caller at the time, uh, where I would get people on the phones and, and dial them up and try to reach the CEOs, the founders, everything like that. And within a month or two, I actually developed a new system uh, that literally tripled the contacts that they were dealing with at the time. So if you triple your contacts, what's it going to do to your revenue? It goes ahead and can do similar. So I was able to talk my way and finagle my way into becoming a registered rep at the age of 17 or 18. I think it was 18 uh, when the test came back. Uh, so I was a stockbroker and I was like 18 uh, in the number one producing boardroom in the country. Worked for the number one and two guys in terms of the country that was in that industry, in that vertical. Uh, but it just, you know, that industry wasn't for me in terms of the stocks. I couldn't stand selling other people's shit, you know, in terms of what it is. Again, not to say that word again, but literally. Uh, so at NYU, I was there for a couple of years. I left in year three. I did not go the full time. I didn't go the full time because I ended up doing something called the audio text industry at the time before there was really uh, you know, all the internet and everything else, there were these voicemail systems and we started working what's called audio text boards or stuff with the beepers, the pagers, everything like that content. And it took off. It was one of those things that we started walking around. I say we, myself and, and my brother and a couple others started walking around like all the different boroughs in New York, putting flyers on cars. And sure enough, 30 days later, we had a good amount of money from that, a lot more than they teach you uh, making at NYU in terms of a school, and it was off to the races. And from then on out, it was where all the businesses and everything started coming from there in terms of the real businesses, from putting flyers on cars. Wow. So, so that's how it really, really started. Tell us, tell us about your uh, the niche. What were you guys really good at? And what, you know, what, what, uh, you know, what, what made you successful at that? 
Sure. I mean, that was the type of thing where, you know, there was, you know, the, the precursor to really, as I said, like certain internet content and everything else. So that was the stuff where you had certain paper call lines. You had stuff that went ahead and started growing very rapidly. But what I ended up doing is really going into business brokerage. And that was a conscious decision. Decided to open up a business brokerage. Uh, ended up opening up with a guy who had one of the largest franchise networks at the time, but retired. And so opened up a business brokerage in New York and it became really the largest, quickest business brokerage network at the time. Uh, we basically owned New York and I did it really just to, to learn about all the different types of businesses, all the different things. So, you know, we sold everything from chocolate manufacturers to, to printing companies, to restaurants, bars, you name it, every type of business there was. And so that gave, you know, a really good grounding uh, when it comes across, you know, all the different types of industries, the different verticals, especially at that stage. Uh, it also taught how to deal with guys that were two, three times your age or my age in terms of managing them, which was kind of interesting. So went from there to, to the business brokerage side of it. Wow. That's cool. What type, what type of businesses were you, were you, were you representing and selling and, and all yeah, that? Yeah, sure. I mean, we were dealing with everything from, as I said, like, you know, from the small retail stores to middle market companies, uh, obviously not larger, but it was really everything from, you know, at the time there was manufacturing in the boroughs. There still is. We were dealing with a lot of the manufacturing companies, uh, but also everything from dry cleaners uh, to the restaurants, to the bars, uh, to dental practices, uh, to cookie manufacturing companies, chocolate manufacturers, retailers, you name it. You know, and, and doing that type of business, that teaches you real quickly uh, regarding the interactions of the personalities, all the different types, the different mechanics of the businesses, you name it. It gives you a really fundamentally good grounding, much better actually than college does. So was, was there a um, uh, demographics you guys looked to? Was it a rifle approach or a shotgun approach? You just knocked on every door? Or did you look for, you know, kind of people who can retire? How did you go about that? Sure. Well, it was funny you say knock on every door because, yeah, I learned everything when I was six years old, and that's actually what we did. Uh, that's how we blanketed New York. We quite literally knocked on every damn door. So our first territory that we're hitting was Manhattan, and one of the ways we used to train people was we'd basically have them come in. We'd have them read a book for basically – an hour or two, we take him out to 23rd and 5th Avenue and say, hey, what we want you to do is walk down towards, uh, what was it, towards uh, 10th, 10th Street, yeah, so we we're at 23rd Street, walk down 5th Avenue, go down towards uh, 10th Street or something like that, hit every business, every owner that you can, and walk up on the other side all the way back and do the same. So we'd wait around, and if they showed up and actually came back, then we would train them. If they did not come back, we knew they weren't cut out for it. So we did that as really the litmus test in the beginning before investing in somebody to see whether or not they could do just that. Because doing that in New York is a different world. You didn't waste a lot of money in that initial training. I like that. We had an hour, no, hour absolutely. read this book for an hour, and then, uh, then, then, then hit the street. I love it. And if they got because the here's, it, your knowledge base isn't that important. It doesn't matter how much you know or how great of an intermediary you are or what your financial knowledge is. It comes down to, are you going to knock on that damn door and get the decision maker? That's really what it comes down to. I like it. That's awesome. Um, and, and you said it was a, a conscious decision to get into the brokerage. Can you help me understand what, what the conscious decision was there? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, basically, I, I was sitting on a, a good amount of cash from previous businesses, and I said, okay, you know, what is the best thing that I want to do? And I, I really didn't know which direction to take it in. I didn't have some, you know, grandiose vision about technology or something along those lines. I just felt that, you know, with a business brokerage that I would get a certain level of exposure to these businesses, hopefully. You know, that was the assumption. If I can go ahead and go into this business brokerage side, and I didn't know a damn thing about selling a business. I didn't know a damn thing about listing a business. But the point was, if I get enough exposure at that stage of my career, that hopefully it would give me almost in a way the power or the strength or the ammunition or the knowledge or the value uh, to be able to make better decisions in the future. And so that's why I chose that path versus going vertical. I decided to go wide, very wide. How old yeah. were you this time? Uh, that was like 1920. No, no. How old were you? Or 19 to 20 years old. That's it. Yeah, very. Oh, how old was I doing the business brokerage? Yeah, I started was 1920 between there, like 19. Yeah, 17, 18, 19, yeah, my third year, so 20. So right around 20 years old is when I did that business. As you're at school at NYU? Yeah, I dropped out of NYU, third year. So I dropped out of NYU third year, did not go the entire distance. Yeah. Wow. Best decision I ever made. That's what I was gonna say, best decision you've ever made, yeah, 100%. <laughs> so what, what's, uh, what was next? How long did you do that? I uh, did that for a couple of years. It, it ended up being a golden handcuff deal, which was a, a good education, meaning that, okay, it wasn't a business that you could foundationally build upon and walk away from. It wasn't something that could be a standalone pump. Uh, if I wasn't there, those deals didn't get closed. So I had to be quite literally involved in almost every deal to make it happen. And so if I couldn't make it happen or, you know, you're sick or something else, even though you have all these people uh, generating uh, the listings, generating the activity, generating everything else, uh, the closing side of it was very difficult to standardize. It was very, very difficult to standardize. So I made a decision to get out of it. Uh, it was something that, again, was another conscious decision to really not go that route. Uh, ended up going into, you know, software companies and creating stuff like that in the software companies. Which space did you start in in software? Uh, started inspiring software. So we were the first people that went ahead and did a lot of the direct marketing uh, via email before it was called spam and all that bad stuff. Uh, it was actually called UCE. So we were the first ones to do that. Uh, we were in really the marketing side of it with the direct sales. You know, at that time, you could press a button and you generate 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 in sales in one day. You literally could pound the crap out of it. It was something that nobody was doing at the time, and you can grow up pretty damn quickly, pretty damn exponentially. And so that was damn fun. That was a good period of time in terms of cash flows and how you start growing it. So that was really, really fun. Right. And what led you to software then? Go well, well, I mean, we're, before the business brokerage, we were doing what's called audio text, which are voicemail systems. So long before, as I said, you had like internet protocol and all this other stuff, you had physical boards and computers that would act basically as voicemail systems. So we were programming those. Me personally, no, uh, but I was the one that got the deals done. I was the one that started the company. To this day, I've never written a line of code, although I do a lot of software companies. Uh, it's really the formation of the teams and getting those people together. That's the damn interesting part for me, you know, and creating the sales ahead of time and establishing those relationships. So that's what we ended up doing. Cool. That's, uh, I mean, it's all it really, if, you, if you've got the ability to, to communicate, you know, love people, you communicate well, right. And you can sell, man, it's sure. your life, right. And, you know, we, we had, uh, uh, Paul Darley, uh, was one of our stories. He wrote a book called sold, 
and Paul's a CEO, right? He he really looks himself as a as a as a sales a salesman, right? A, you know, full time. That's all he's thought about as a salesman because he's got to sell to his employees a vision. He's got to sell to his his customers product and the value. He's, sure. he's got he's he's always selling, right? So he wrote a book called Sold, and and he, but he always like you, you know, just loved to 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 be in front of people. You know, opening up relationships, um, uh, delivering a, a product that customers would love, and then closing a deal, right? Right. And so it's uh, it's all about selling. I mean, not not that you can't be successful as a, as a leader, an entrepreneur, and not love sales, but boy, it sure helps, doesn't it? Yeah, but I mean, think about it, you and and you know, I don't know a hundred percent of your story, but my assumption is that you quite literally had to pound the pavement at some point in order to be where you are. You know, obviously, you're laying the pavement. You had to pound the pavement. You know, the only way that you learn and you talk a certain way and you have a certain vernacular understanding is if you've done that. Absolutely. And, and initially, you may not have done it a lot, right? But you, right. you had, you had the uh, ability to communicate, love, love dealing with people, right? Hopefully, um, uh, you're maybe extroverted um, like I was. But, but again, you, you didn't have to know everything about the subject, but you had to be pretty right. passionate about it and continue to learn about it if you're going to grow in that space. And, and uh, so, tell, so, so then uh, tell us about that. You're, you know, you're in your mid twenties only, right? And you're, yeah. you're doing stuff. still, still a young guy with amazing experience. Yeah. But here's, you know, with the software side of it, it was one of those things that, you know, yes, we made money. Yes. We started doing stuff. Yes. Everything else. But the, the point of it really was, again, here was something that necessarily wasn't a pump. I was still trying to figure out how to build something that was a pump. So, you know, you can go through these iterations and you'd have companies that are life cycle companies, but creating something that was more of a longer term pump that could grow, that at that stage, I hadn't mastered. That's something that, that took a good amount of time and a good amount of cycles to be able to figure that out. And so if somebody's lucky enough to find that from the very beginning stage and build that, that's awesome. Uh, but for me, it was really fundamentally trying to do stuff that other people hadn't done. I, I didn't like doing stuff that other people had done. Even with the business brokerage, our point wasn't just to be a linear business brokerage. We were trying to go ahead and figure a way to standardize that in such a way that we could quote unquote take over the world in that industry. And it was basically elusive. It became a golden handcuff deal. We, we weren't able to figure it out. So did it work? work on one level? Yeah. But did it work on that end level that we were really trying to go after? No. You know, so in that way that failed, but that failure, you know, kept building up and building up and building up, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's something that I think all, a lot of us do. I shouldn't say all of us. I do know some people crazy successful at a young age and in, in, in building a uh, annuity, right? An annuity of a great business right. that grows exponentially without them having to be, you know, the, the lead part of it, the, the main, you know, uh, cog in the wheel, right? And and so, uh, but again, as a, at a young age, I think the lessons you learn are invaluable anyway. Whether it's you're building a job or you're building, you know, long-term uh, annuity and in, in, in entrepreneurship and business building, whatever that is. And uh, so, you, you, when when did you figure that? When when did you find that product or that that uh, service or product that you could duplicate without you having to be yep. the guy every minute of the day? 
Well, there's two things, first of all. It's something I call the entrepreneur's education that's going to lead into that, okay? So, you know, I think that, that fundamentally anybody that starts a business, even if you hit a home run from the very beginning stage, okay, uh, you know, you have once-in-a-lifetime people like Zuckerberg or things like that. They, they don't necessarily have to do that. But the vast majority of people have to go through what I call the entrepreneur's education where there's no shortcut. And so even if you hit it in the beginning, you're going to hit a patch of your life where stuff doesn't work out, stuff doesn't doesn't go your way in some way in business and you're gonna have to learn the lessons the hard way there's no shortcut around it so what ended up happening with these software companies I I just basically started hating what I was doing again it wasn't where something was necessarily scalable yes it was cash flow yes it was whatever and at the time I was on a low carbohydrate diet and I woke up very, very pissed and angry one morning, uh, and I wanted a low-carbohydrate muffin, and this was long before there was any type of low-carbohydrate product. It was long before there was anything like keto out there or the paleo diets or anything else. Uh, there was a guy named Dr. Atkins that was hawking his book in a couple little bars around, uh, but it was really at the beginning of something uh, that was damn interesting, and I just wanted a muffin. So I went out and I started trying to work on this low carb muffin. As I said, there was no recipes online. So I bought some protein and stuff from uh, the vitamin shop, I think at the time, or GNC. And I made this concoction and it was horrible. It was absolutely freaking nasty stuff. So I said, okay, well, I'm obviously not a person that can do this, but what can I do? And I'm good at putting together people together to go ahead and start companies. So the first thing I started doing was hunting down food chemists. And at the time, there was pretty much AOL. AOL was the only damn thing around uh, when it comes to online. AOL and maybe Earthlink. And AOL had a membership directory, kind of like LinkedIn's directory right now. And I started contacting every damn food chemist that I could. And all of them said it couldn't be done, it shouldn't be done, it wouldn't be done. I had them cursing me out for philosophical reasons, for scientific reasons, for you name it. And I ran across one guy. One guy that said, sure, I'll help you. I'll help you. I'll help you. I just asked for help. I had nothing involved with payment, nothing else. 30 days later, I had a blueberry muffin that had 2.6 grams of carbohydrates. And I said, huh, let's go ahead and start this business. Started the business with almost nothing, literally 1200 bucks. 1200 bucks is what I started that business with. Uh, slept on a factory floor for a couple of years until it started getting momentum and figuring it out. Uh, ended up delivering product frozen uh, in my car with the air conditioning on, driving through upstate Pennsylvania during the winter, all right, because I didn't have a reefer truck or anything. I didn't have tons of money at that time. Uh, and literally went ahead and, and made the sales myself. I uh, got in the first 300 stores myself. And sure enough, it started getting traction. It just started taking off. And it started taking off, taking off, taking off, taking off, taking off. One little article came about, out about us and people were driving uh, to go ahead and pick up product in the back of this factory because we didn't even have distribution or anything really fully everywhere uh, in a little 2,500 square foot factory, all right? Little tiny oven and whatever else, just me doing it. Uh, but that took off. I mean, we had cash flow, immediate cash flow. It was a physical product. It was something that scaled, that was universal. And so we went through over, you know, six, seven different generations of packaging and product development over two or three years, and it exploded. Product was sold everywhere. Uh, and so we ended up increasing product lines, and, and it just grew, grew, grew. And that was the one business that I could literally step away from finally uh, and it actually generated business and generated money in spite of itself, in spite of whoever was doing anything. 
Wow, that's cool. What was it called? That was Osolo Foods. Osolo Foods. And we were the largest low-carbohydrate manufacturer in the world of low-carbohydrate food products. Who'd you sell to? Who are your, who are your biggest customers? Well, busy customer of all the grocery stores. So we were in more than 10,000 independent health food stores already all over the place. That was our base, which that's another lesson there. But we were in everything from Wegmans to Kroger's uh, to Publix uh, to you name it, Winn-Dixie if they're still around, Ralph's, yeah. everywhere you are. I mean, we were in every grocery chain all over the place. So much so that I remember getting uh, literally not even emails, but physical thank you letters. Somebody was down off the coast of South America, flew into South America, took a plane and then a boat somewhere else stepped off on this little tiny island and they're like holy crap I step off it and they've got your rolls there and I'm like holy <laughs> crap so I'm like yeah that's pretty good distribution that was really good that's cool now is that is that business still alive today no that business went ahead and it lasted for about six seven years it was a good pump it lasted a very long time but unfortunately uh the guy Robert Atkins went ahead and slipped and fell on ice, cracked his head, and the whole industry imploded in a period of about three or four months. Every last manufacturer went chapter 11 or liquidated during that period of time. And so for us, we had a couple 50,000 square plants, uh, 50,000 square foot plants uh, that we grew to. We had deals with all uh, the fast food uh, companies that were going ahead and be coming out that we had built up for. And we made a good amount of money, but the market just suddenly imploded and dried up. I mean, it instantly dried up. Never saw anything like it before in my life. But it was also a great lesson because that taught me, Gary, to never build on somebody else's trend or somebody else's story. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I never would have thought that. You know, uh, when Atkins, you know, he, he, what, what exactly happened? He, he split his head. What, he, he was Yeah, he, he literally, he was the lightning rod for the industry at the time. So there was no, you know, we didn't even spend a penny on, on advertising. And we grew that just internally. I mean, it was literally, we didn't even have a marketing budget. We didn't spend anything. And it grew insanely everywhere. We were pretty damn big. But when he slipped and fell, he literally slipped and fell on ice, hit his head, uh, and basically died a couple days later. And this was in Manhattan. And when he died... Every major manufacturer in low carb ended up going out every, because there was no more business on it. It was the weirdest thing ever. Never saw anything like it. We didn't think it was really just, you know, a fad. We thought it was a longer term trend. Uh, but for the next really almost five, eight years, it just basically died. It, there was nothing there. More than 13% of the population at the time was on a low carbohydrate diet or variant. And it went down to less than 1%. Wow. And, and it's non-existent today? There's no Non-existent. Part. These diets aren't popular anymore? Oh, yeah. They, they've come back in certain ways. They've come back like paleo has come in certain ways. But with paleo, you know, you have certain product lines that reach a certain amount, but they're basically $5 million or less companies. There's nothing that, let's say you could build up a $500 million or a billion dollar entity around. So, you know, it's, it's not that it's not a challenge per se, but the maximum you could do on that is much lower than at that time where you were painting large swaths of market. You know, it's fundamentally different. So, so you, you, uh, you would wish you would have sold it uh, at year five or what? Well, I, it's one of those things that we were right as that was happening. We had a very large scale capital raise going on. Uh, we had a very, very, very large scale capital raise that we were about to now take that to even that, that final next level, that holy grail level, and we had to back out. It was one of those things where it just, there was nothing there. I mean, I had, I went from hundreds of people in these three plants that we had, you know, popping and growing, to I'm the only one sitting in a plant. 
I mean, I'm the only one there. And so that was a very, that, that was almost in a way what I call the final lesson in terms of being able to figure out how to grow and how to get things going. That was really it. You're still a young, young guy here at this point. What, 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 were, you, what were you then, 35 then? Or how old 36, you? yeah, 35, 36, something along those lines, yeah. You're a young guy with all these amazing lessons, and, and hopefully you, you put a couple of uh, shekels away. And we, what, what's the next uh, thing you're ready for? Yeah, well, after that, we, we came out with a couple companies that we were able to go ahead and start flipping and growing and doing certain things with. So I had Usurp, which was a database, a financial advisor database company, ended up going back into software uh, just because we knew how we could go ahead and get it going again and, and pop certain markets. So we dealt with what's called the broker dealer industry, the financial industry, uh, all the information on that backside. Our major customers were all the Wall Street firms uh, and all those different types of customers, registered investment advisors, broker dealers, uh, and the company grew insanely. We took over a uh, market share of one to 2% every month uh, for the first two years. Uh, and then we got bought out. We got paid to go away. So that was a great deal. That was called Usurp, U-Z-U-R-P, fundamentally great company. Uh, we ended up creating another company very similar. I can't talk about this one too much because there's still an NDA on it, uh, but it was a medical device company uh, that we crafted uh, a product that was really neat. Uh, it was a once-a-day spray for menopausal hot flashes uh, that we were able to go ahead and move that company and move that product after another period of two, three years uh, at a very high multiple. Uh, and that was really taking advantage of all the previous knowledge base of all the distribution and how to get it out there. And again, not building on anybody else's vertical, not building on anybody else's uh, philosophy or, or what their market is, really crafting our own markets. Uh, and then what ended up happening is, you know, a couple of years ago, I came across uh, really a scenario where I said, okay, well, I'm running across all these different entrepreneurs. I see the failure rates of what they're doing. And I personally have never needed capital in the beginning stages of any company I ever created. Uh, and so I ended up going ahead and creating Gusher. And Gusher itself uh, is what I'm doing right now. And Gusher is growing phenomenally. Tell us about Gusher. Sure. Gusher is a platform to launch companies without the need for money. So Gusher itself uh, we have more than 140 companies in our portfolio and what it's growing. Uh, we deal with everything in terms of from SaaS companies to consumer goods, uh, to business to business companies, business to business to consumer companies, B2B to C, you name it, from all across the globe, all different ages. Uh, but unlike a, a venture capital platform, what I saw is that fundamentally, you know, dealing with all these different entities, dealing with the failures, dealing with the successes, dealing with uh, what I ran into time and time again is that there were certain patterns. And the patterns were just like with Osolo Foods, when I didn't really need a penny to get it going, it was really a function of bringing the people into these companies in the beginning stage without capital. And if the idea resonates with them, what we call or what I call the VIM, the vested interest market, then that company typically has a higher likelihood of succeeding in the marketplace. So, so let's is that, is that, is that your, uh, term, your term that you coined or what? Um, to my knowledge, yes, VIM, vested interest market, but I mean, you have VIM and vigor, which has a different meaning, uh, but I call about the vested interest market is really the primary thing of what, what I deal with or what we deal with. We'll trademark that for you. <laughs> and it's important stuff. I mean, if you're doing a paving company, Gary, I mean, who the hell 
is your VIM? Who's your vested interest market? You know, yeah. is it the people that are that are making uh, the actual raw components of the product? Is it the people that are providing the, the equipment? Is it the people that own very large um, um, uh, land areas yeah. that actually would need your services? All of those are VIM. All oh, of those. It's are the an best awesome interest. way to say it because yeah, we have to be focused on that, right? So for us, it's the largest it's facilities from small to the right. very largest facilities owners in the country. You know, so Walmart's, Home Depot's, Lowe's, and right. Lodge's, and then everybody all the way to one building owner, right, is our customers nationally, regionally, and nationally. And then for us, it's also big utility, gas companies, electric right. companies, cell tower companies, right? It's the utility owners, or, you know, uh, real estate owners and stuff like that. Do we, we serve their facilities and their utility and your utility um, assets, right? So that's our, that's our, those are our niches right there. And our industry serves many niches, right? Right. Roads, roads and highways and all that, or, or driveways. So, yeah. Right. But think, think of it this way. Now, now take that philosophy or take that, that vim a little bit further. Okay. Let's say you're just starting out your company. All right. And let's say you don't have the equipment. Let's say you don't have um, your team in place. You don't have a message. You don't have a product. You don't have a service, but you have an idea there of what you're trying to accomplish. Well, if you're in the paving industry, the quickest way to know whether or not you have a product or an interest or something viable is whether or not you can get those people involved with your company at the earliest stage. And that's pretty much what Gusher is. So if I'm creating, let's say, a new pen, well, if I've got, you know, the plastic components manufacturer, the plastic injection molding, if I can't get, you know, the industrial designer and I can't get the chemical manufacturer and provider of that ink to get involved in it in some way, chances are I don't really have anything of value per se. But if you're able to get them involved at the beginning stages, that's a green flag. That's a market validation stage before there's money. And that fundamentally changes the venture capital model. So what ends up happening is you're able to validate or figure out your company ahead of time before spending this money, before seeing uh, all this time as to whether or not it comes back to you in a good way. You're able to validate it. And that's really what Gusher is. It's a, it's a self-vetting or self-validating platform. Yeah, it's I like the MVP then, right? So it's the state. Yeah, but, but even think of it this way. You know, when we talk about minimum viable product or proof of concept or first version, you know, there's – there's the common understanding of that, but we really take it to the market viable product. So what we say is if you're creating a company, let's say you had half a million dollars or a million dollars, all right? Who would you bring onto your team to go ahead and craft that product or craft that company? That's what you do with Gusher, except you don't need the money. People join in exchange for equity. So what ends up happening is, and it's performance-based, so what happens is people join these companies to create this company, to get it off the ground, whatever the company is. And so long as they're able to launch, then they're able to get equity in that company. If it doesn't, they get nothing. We get nothing. Everything is 100% performance-based. It's market-driven. So that, you know, Gary, I know you've probably been in business meetings where you hear this. Everybody has an idea. Ideas are worthless. Ideas are nothing. It's the execution. Well, that's kind of changing because execution is becoming commoditized. So what ends up happening now is the idea, the idea actually is important uh, because the good ideas are the ones that are able to get these teams together and you don't need money to start a company. You don't need a damn thing but people to go ahead and start a company. Sure. I love it. I love it. It's a, it's a really cool uh, concept. How, how long has Gusher been, uh, been operating? 
Sure. We started Gusher about three years ago. Uh, we put together, we Gushered Gusher. We drank our own Kool-Aid. Uh, we put out and we felt it was philosophically important to. We thought it was really damn, damn important to do so. All right. Uh, we could have taken on funds at that stage. We didn't. Uh, we actually Gushered Gusher. Uh, and so the first version of Gusher, the alpha version, we released out there. It started taking off like wildfire. We pulled it back down. It took us the next year to go ahead and craft the legal. Uh, so go ahead and dealing with all the different agencies and everybody around. It took us almost a year uh, to make damn sure the foundation was in place. Released our beta version. We're coming out of beta right now. And as I said, we've got close to or about 140 companies on the platform. Uh, we've got about an 80% success rate. Uh, so if you're a founder, you're able to come into Gusher, you have about an 80% chance of getting your team and either becoming self-sustaining financially and or attracting larger scale financing to be able to get you there. So you're able to create value right off the bat. And you find out real quickly whether or not your idea has legs. That's cool. And, and what, what is your, uh, are, you, are you guys able to bring value when it comes to that uh, VIM? I mean, are you, are you, are you uh, de definitely. I think the, the identifying your vested interest market, identifying your VIM, I think is one of those things that, that you get better at the more that you do. It's not something you're instantly see. You have to be taught how to do it per se, or you have to learn it over a good period of time. So one of the things that we do come in is we help them identify that is, you know, whether they're starting a SaaS company where they always think it's a certain type of customer that's their VIM, and usually it's not. Uh, usually it's somebody in a parallel industry that has more to gain from it. Identifying who has the most to gain is obviously a part that we play in that, but also the market decides. So for example, let's say a very simplistic thing, a dog food company. Well, a dog food company has a very large VIM. There's dog food owners everywhere. There's all different types of dog food owners. There's everything involved with it. But if you're starting something like you know, a diabetic company, yes, there's people with diabetes, but there's a lot less of them per se. And now if you go even further and you're starting, let's say something that's a, a cardiac thoracic uh, software uh, that's utilized in emergency rooms, well, that gets even tighter. However, you don't need thousands upon thousands of them to make something happen. Sure. You need three, four, five of those to go ahead and make it happen. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. And and so you you, you help them help. You know, so tell us all the ways all the ways that you help a business start up, right? In, in all aspects, I guess. But you know, are there some strengths or some niches you guys are super strong at, and other things that um, just the group of investors are are, are the brain trust or what? Well, think of it this way. First of all, you know, we try, we help them in any way possibly that we can. So we don't get anything unless they're able to go ahead and launch successfully on Gusher. We're what's called an equity player, also a performance-based player. So if they're not able to go ahead and launch successfully on Gusher, meaning able to reach all their goals, whatever those goals are, we get nothing absolutely nothing for it. So anything that comes out of our mouths or, or that we tell somebody to do in terms of a founder, it's a self-vetted, it's vested interest. We have a vested interest in what we say, and so we're all rowing in the same direction. So whether it's a, something as granular as how to go ahead and recruit, or whether it's something as the what red flags to look for when you're dealing with the recruiting process, or what you're dealing with the development process, how to do it, how to hold your meetings, how often to have them. Uh, we have it where just as last February before COVID happened, I was asked to fly out to Las Vegas and help close investors. I did it. I was asked to go ahead and go out to uh, Madison, Wisconsin uh, to go visit a manufacturing plant to bring them on board for this other deal. I did it. So we do whatever the heck it takes to help these founders get their idea off the ground. But also what we found, which we didn't expect, 
is by being on Gusher, uh, what ends up happening is financial uh, people, investors, VCs, angel investors are coming into these deals at a much earlier stage. So the VC said it this way, uh, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said, you know, Gusher is like salmon swimming up the stream. Only the strong survive. And by having them go ahead and swim up the stream and being strong, that already is a form of market validation. Unlike standard, hey, you got investor dollars, which doesn't mean BS. Uh, a lot of these companies get investor dollars that aren't on Gusher, but their success rates suck. And they suck because they didn't have to go through the shit, Gary. Not to bring it full circle. They didn't get to go through the shit. Huh. Okay, and then... Uh when, when you look at the, the, the value you guys bring or the equity you take that, that you share in, I mean, sure. how, how do you value it? How do you value what Gusher gets for the value they bring? Sure. We, we actually keep it very low. So our equity position is very linear. It's a straight 2% equity in the company, so long as they actually succeed. However, do, do we think what we do is worth a hell of a lot more? Absolutely. But we think that's fair. It doesn't uh, go ahead and prevent them from having issues in the future with capital raise. Uh, with us itself, we feel it's fair at this stage for, for what they're given and how we help them. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they are the masters of their own boat, meaning how they control their company, how they do it is all up to them. You know, you can't, you can't pull somebody up a mountain, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, and then uh, people that, that, that come in from the outside that are, that are brain, brain trusts or, you know, subject matter experts that come in on the outside and say, man, I, wanna, I can help that company, right? Sure. How do they determine the interest there? Is that between the founder and that, and that person? Or how yeah. I mean, it, it depends on, on the actual deal. Usually what they're doing is they're crafting their needs ahead of time. So let's say you're starting, you know, a paperclip company. Well, in this case, to start a paperclip company, you're going to need a materials engineer, an industrial designer. For your selling of it and the planning of it, you're going to need a chief marketing officer to figure out the markets that you're attacking. You're going to need maybe a social media strategist to go ahead and hook up with the influencers and pre-sell it. You're going to need a CFO at the beginning stage to help lay the investor base down and to be able to tell your story every step of the way to do the investor introductions, the capital introductions, whatever it may be. So the point is not to go ahead and just craft this paper clip and now you got a product. The point is to go ahead and leapfrog your development or your company creation generationally so that you actually have something that's market viable. So either you become self-sustaining or you get and or you get larger scale capital as a result of creating that value. So it's not bringing in people that are just willing to join your company. It's bringing people that are key to your deal, to your company and what you're forming, and they typically should be at a very high level. You don't want people learning on your company. You don't want people figuring it out on your company. You want people that are the best at what they do joining your company for the right reasons. Awesome. Is there, is, there, is there certain industries that you, you've found that you guys are strong in or is it all different things? We, we've seen everything from medical device to consumer goods to business to business to hardcore manufacturing. Uh, we've seen it with every different age group from 20 years to a 70-year-old grandmother in South Africa. Uh, we've seen it where it's all different ethnicities, all different religions, all different locations. Makes no damn bit of difference. But what it does come down to, and it's really wild, we didn't think, you know, we were trying to figure out as we were growing how to analyze, you know, who the founders are. What is the commonality? What's the common thread? You know, it is, as I said, it doesn't have to do with age, education. It doesn't have to do with their income level or past history. It has to do with one thing, Gary. Gary, if you hit it on the head, I'll send you a million bucks. If you hit this on the head, 
any idea what ties in the successful founders, the people who are able to create companies from the ground up with nothing from the ones that aren't? Um, and it's not like never giving up. That's a given. Okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I, I would get, I mean, for me, it'd be, it'd be a passion and a vision for something that solves big problems. That, that goes with it. The bigger the problem, the easier the sale, no doubt about it. The easier to, to be able to get people involved with the company. But the ones that succeed are not the ones with this wealth of business experience, are not the ones with this wealth even of life experience per se. It's the ones that take honesty to a fault. It is crazy. Like, like it's literally their religion. They, they are word is their word. They mean it. If they don't know something, they don't pretend to know something. Again, I don't know if you can see the goosebumps. Uh, but literally, that's, that's literally the commonality, the common factor from what we've seen in terms of the successful entrepreneurs uh, versus the ones that aren't. And in this methodology. Sure. No, I mean, it, make, it makes sense. And, and again, if most people that jump into something, any, any entrepreneur jumps into something, they don't usually go into it because they think they're going to be a billionaire someday. And they go into it because they, they sincerely think they can help and solve a problem. That's right. one of my, my experiences, right? Yep. And, and you know, money will come, sometimes big money, sometimes you know, sometimes you know, temporary money, as you talked about. Right, earlier, exactly. Right? Cyclical. And, and sometimes it's crazy. It's crazy money. And, and, and it, could, you know, it could be billions. But, but again, it starts with, for me, I agree with you. I mean, if you're passionate about a product and, and, you, and, you're, and you have some, some expertise in it, even it's nice, right? But if you have an idea of a, pro of a problem that can be solved by your solution, and if you're dishonest, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you're in, if you're in for the short term, it doesn't matter, right? You're, right. You won't be there. But if you're, if you're honest to a fault, uh, you know, where, hey, man, I, I just want to solve your problem. Uh, how much are you going to cost me? I don't care how much it costs. I, I, I'll do it for free at this point. I, I got to help solve a problem, right? If, it's the, if that's the mentality, you're going to be successful. If it's, hey, man, how much money can I make on this first deal? Boy, I'm sorry, but you're going to have a hard time getting off the ground, right? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I think it comes down to there's this common belief of fake it till you make it. And I think it's total, absolutely bullshit. You know, I think yeah. if anything, you should flaunt your flaws. You know, if you don't know something and somebody asks you, say you don't know and you'll find out. You know, especially with business relationships, that goes a long way, you know, and especially because that builds the trust. That builds the, the, the factor of, hey, you're human and they're willing to help you. You know, with Oslo Foods, I would have been nowhere if that guy just didn't decide to help me. And I asked him years later, I'm like, you know, I sent you an email. This was before there was video calling. I'm like, why'd you help? And he goes, you asked. Yeah. You know. That, that was it, you know, and for him, he was that type of guy, still is, he's that type of guy, a great guy, he just helps people, and so fundamentally, if you ask for help, especially in business, chances are you're going to get it from somebody. Sure, I mean, if you, like, as you said, if you ask for help from somebody that's also passionate about the, solving the same problem, right, you'll get it, and if it's somebody that's had great success in, in, in the past, in the industry you're passionate about, you have that connectivity, you, you're going you're gonna to win over a great mentor or, or somebody that's going to help you out. So that's a great point. And I think today it's easier to find and do that more than ever because yeah. on the internet, you can truly find out who the best in the world are at whatever your interests are, right? Well, yeah. I, mean, I, I tell people, I say to founders all the time, there's literally no one you can't reach out to pretty much at any level and connect with. So if you're in retail, Dude, you can reach out right now and connect with whoever's running Wegmans, who's ever running Publix. You can go ahead and establish relationships that end up where you're a hot knife through warm butter to get to where you need to go. 
You can do that for any industry, any vertical whatsoever. You want to go ahead and deal with all the family offices and raise capital? Guess what? They're all listed there. Start talking with them. You want to go ahead and put your, your products in all uh, the different uh, health food stores? They're all right there waiting for you. All it is is a function of making the personal relationship. Absolutely, and 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 calling uh, calling on anybody. I mean, you, you've been that, you've been a, a champion at this over your life, and that's that's awesome. When you think about you know knocking on doors as six years old for to sell seed, and then sure. you know, on doors for businesses, right? I, I I say the same thing. I I started out knocking on doors to, to pave pave driveways, and before that it was newspapers and lawns to mow and whatever. But but again, it's no different. I mean, anything you do in your life, if, if you're just not afraid to knock on doors until they open. Uh, and not and and be okay with getting them slammed in your face or people laughing at you saying you know, get out of here you know you know yeah you're not you're not cool enough to talk to me if you're not willing to do that you're gonna have a problem and and so I love it and I also love the fact that you, you know you said this and you'll hear this over and over with success with you know Jimmy John Ed Zeman Paul Darley you know for sure myself right I am not a, a, a academically a smart guy I, I'm not I do read nowadays more than I ever have but I didn't read at all as a young guy I couldn't stand studying. Yeah, in school, I you know I, I didn't wasn't crazy about school except sports and and, and girls, right? But either way, I end up end up today, you know, as I, as I as I realized I wasn't that smart my whole career. I learned a lot more because I, I I truly do go into any meetings understanding I'm not I'm not the smartest person in the room, and I ask stupid questions. I warn people ahead of time I'm gonna ask stupid questions, so please be patient, right? Smart. And if you're you're willing to ask the stupid questions and you're willing to realize you're not the smartest person in the, in the conversation you're in, you're going to learn a lot and you're going to be, you're, you're going to have more opportunity for success than you could ever imagine. And that goes all back to exactly what you said of, of, you know, basically that, that, uh, that, that, you know, that, that mindset of, you know, honesty to a fault. I mean, I love it because if, if you, if you if you realize who you are and we, I don't, I'm not saying I'm great at it, but I think that people that realize who they are, what they're, what, what they're really not good at. Right. Um, are going to have a lot more opportunity in life than those who think they're great at everything. Uh, but, Gary, I also think this though, and, and I've got these, you know, whole deal rules and everything that I've, I've learned over the course of my life. I think it comes down to two things and, and you started touching on it. All right. Is that, you know, when you start ta talking about knocking on the doors and you get the slams in the face and everything else, I think a lot of people miss the fact that, and, and you're talking about, you're not the smartest person in the room and you say, hey, you're going to, you know, ask, ask these quote unquote dumb questions, which probably aren't dumb is it fundamentally comes down to the following. I am enough. That, that simple three little words, I am enough. You're not supposed to be an expert at everything, okay? How you're born into this world, you have the exact tools and everything you need to go ahead and succeed. Uh, whatever tools you have, wherever you are, whatever lot in life, you know, I get uh, that, that literally when it comes to opportunity that it's not spread evenly, but talent is. But the fact of the matter is, you can go ahead and make it happen. You are enough. Whether you're talking to a PhD in a certain vertical that you know nothing about, or whether you're trying to get that gargantuan sale and you have no experience doing it, or whether you're starting a company and you don't know what comes after step one, you're not supposed to have it all figured out. Yeah. It's a journey. You know, if you are enough, that's it. The rest doesn't matter. I love simple way to put it. I love it, man. I am enough. That's awesome. And I, I, we're, we're talking to a, a, a woman that's a leader in the world of executive assistance, right? And, and our experience that we shared is, my opinion is, this, you know, some of the smartest people around me are women, right? Yep, definitely. Family members of my wife, my daughters, right? Super smart. My assistant, my executive assistant, Deb, is amazingly smart. And, and, and so many women on my team are super smart. 
when I, we find out what I, what I believe, and my, this is my experience, I'm not saying it's everywhere, but I believe that women are, are, are less apt to, to raise their hand when I say, man, I need a leader to lead this business. I need a leader to lead this product, right? Women could know 90% of the subject matter that I need known, right? And they're like, man, I don't know, 99% or 100%. Maybe someday I'll get there. And they won't raise their hand. Where the guy like me, right, and my, my sons will say, hell, man, 10% of that cover. Right. I'll, I'll get other people to help me figure out the other 90%, right? I'm not saying all guys are like that. Yeah, sure. like, I, just think, I just think that more often it's like that. And, and whether, whether that's your mindset because that's who you are or not, I think change that and say, hey, you know what? If I sincerely want it bad, if I sincerely – love it and 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 good enough then if i know 10 20 30 40 50 of a thing i'm gonna i'm gonna dive in and say and be honest and say i only know this much of the, of the subject matter but doggone it i'm gonna figure out the rest let me lead it right right um, i just believe women will be our leaders in our future way way more often than they are today if if that mindset was a little different that's all yeah, but, and, but I also wonder, you know, if that is changing. I got asked this question yesterday uh, by somebody in England uh, doing their dissertation on this exact topic, okay? And not to go off on a tangent, but the question really had to do with genders and, and what they're running into and, and my experience. And fundamentally, you know, I have seen women that are just operationally way better. Uh, and I don't know if it's a function of ego or not or whatever it may be. I don't analytically know why, uh, but I prefer uh, because they are way better at it. However, with the starting aspect, they're almost never there. And, you know, we have female founders, but representationally as a percentage of the population, it's dismal in terms of the amount that do it. So, you know, do I look historically that there were massive barriers to doing it and probably still are in certain ways? Yes. But at the same time, I look at, you know, where it is right now and the opportunities there and that, hey, education is not, not a barrier. Uh, getting in contact is not a barrier. I think it's just a function of doing it. And so like you're saying, you're not sure where that switch is. I don't know either. I just, I think it's going to change. I know I'm married to probably one of, if not the smartest women I've ever known in my life. And I see the strength that's there. Uh, but the way that I think people are wired comes from a lot of, you know, as a child. And maybe it's up to the parents at an early age to instill that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So as, as fathers and, and mothers, right, to be saying, hey, you know, as, as a woman, you know, yeah, be polite, you know, be, you know, be the, uh, you know, be the classy, classy woman, right? Uh, right. When it comes to business, be classy, but be you know, be assertive, right? Be assertive and go after it and don't let anything, you know, this, this classiness doesn't mean you can't say, you have challenge, you can't be objective and you can't right. raise your hand first, right? Um, so, I mean, I, I've got a, I get a new grand, a granddaughter that's a year old. I'm going to be telling this little Sam right her whole life, right? Cause yeah, but dude, do one, do one better. This is the advice I was given by a partner when I had my first child, okay? I, I, was, I was lamenting about, hey, dude, I'm not, I'm not a normal dad. Okay. All I do is go around and I do business all day. I don't go to, you know, the parties. I don't do the social stuff. I don't do, Hey, let's go to the game type of thing. Or, Hey son, let's go play ball. And he's like, listen, do what you know and teach them that. So from a young age, I brought them to factories. I brought them to pitch meetings. I brought them, you know, to conferences, speaking engagements. I've had them involved where they, like most times, and I, if we weren't recording this, they'd probably be sitting here in my lap right now, actually being part of it and just sitting and watching and absorbing or interacting. You know, I had a, a rule come out of it that said, you know, if, if your pitch is not able to be understood by an eight-year-old, chances are you shouldn't be doing it. And that's a direct result of the children. But, you know, they benefit from from that from who you are and if I had three girls sitting here I'd be doing the exact same damn thing you know 
And I, and I think I was the same with all my kids as well. Uh, and, you know, and my daughters, so they do lead, you know, and, and it's fun to watch them lead. Um, but, but again, I, I, almost the same thing. I, 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 sure. I love sport. I love sports. So I did get involved in sports with my kids, but I worked a lot. And I, and I shared my experiences at work at the dinner table when I made it for dinner, which is maybe a third of the time made it for dinner. And, yeah. and I always came home to, you know, just, just sharing my experiences of the day and, and, and good experiences at work and bad experiences at work. And, I, and overall, they, they got a kick out of it. You know, they got bored once in a while. Oh, not another work story, Dad, right? But overall, they got a lot out of it, I think, and, and, and became passionate about business as well. So, so for me, that, that, I, that's, I, I didn't care if they became business, business leaders or not, but right. they did kind of through osmosis, right, which is kind of fun to, 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 to have happen. Well, we, we do a couple things with the kids now as they've gotten older. I start, you know, they're coming up with an idea or whatever else, and I take them the, through the problem-solution market routine. <laughs> well, what is the core problem? Well, what's the core solution? Have you done any market? All right, well, maybe that's why. Have you gotten anybody on your team yet? You know, and that stuff does work. I love it. That's awesome. That's cool, Chris. Um, so uh, t- tell us about uh, where you want to go in the future now. I mean, Gusher, is this a, is this a sure. thing you want to roll, build and sell? Is this something you want to, you know, Gusher is really, yep, it's really the culmination of everything, all right? It's a culmination of everything I've learned, everything I've done. You know, will there be something after Gusher? Most likely. But at the same time, with Gusher itself, I'm looking at that as our main goal is to launch 25,000 companies over the course of the next three years, come hell or high water. So right now, that is our main goal. We want to launch more companies than have ever been launched by a company or ever will be. And that's really what we're here to do. So any way we can go ahead and facilitate the unlocking of human potential by anyone, whoever the hell it is, wherever they are, that's really our main gist, our main calling. And our, you know, canvas that we paint is business and starting them. And so that's really what we're here to do. And, and, you know, not to just give a line or again, use the Pollyanna thing of, Hey, we're here to help people. It really is fundamentally that I think as you get older, uh, you start realizing that at least for me, I want to leave life empty. Uh, this is what I know how to do. I'm great at doing it in terms of starting the companies and we know what works. And so if that's something we can translate on more of a massive scale or a larger scale, that's what we're here to do. That's really cool. I mean, you know, I, 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 you know, similar mindset that I want, I want to leave this this earth knowing that I made a difference in, in lives of others, a positive right. difference. And boy, that you're you're making a huge difference. I mean, you could be a master mentor to, to thousands of businesses. Would be awesome, right? And that's kind of your your input is is really mentorship, right? Guiding them, yeah. telling tell them, basically helping them with what they, their needs are, right? Exactly. I mean, people say that and it's one of those things where I'm like, it doesn't like resonate with me on one level only because I never had a mentor. I never had somebody showing me that. So it's kind of almost in a way a foreign term to me. I'm always come from the school of do it and you learn it by doing. And maybe there's certain things you can read that can help you leapfrog it. You can always try to make the relationships with people that know more than you do in a certain vertical. But I never had anyone showing me this, you know, step by step. Uh, other than maybe certain sales things at the very beginning stages. So the but rest I, of it. I would think the mentor, you know, for me, mentorship has also been people inspire me, right? So, so yeah. maybe showing me, but more, more or less sharing experiences with me is what, I, what I've had as my best, the best value. I've gotten mentors and then inspired me. Right. Even if I don't, even if I don't even know them. I mean, I, I, there's, there's people out there who have inspired me and mentored me by their experiences without me even knowing them, right? So Absolutely. Was, Great point. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but, but again, mentorship comes in all different ways and, and, and you're, you're, you know, you're going to be uh, somebody that people look, look upon in the future and say, without that son of a gun, Chris, man, there's no way I would have been able to do this. And I can, I can tell you, 
I, I, you know, we've got uh, about 10 companies today. Um, and and I, uh, I've got a couple of businesses always on my mind that I know could create a great value. And there's a couple I'm thinking about right now that I'm like, hey, man, I'm gonna, I might throw this one to Chris. Exactly. And, and, and you find out really quickly. Right? And that's the good thing. Yeah. And the fun thing is for us is we, we, when we have an idea, it's usually in, usually, I'm once I go off on a tangent, but usually it's in sectors where, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with the VIM, right? right. I'm very familiar with the, the, that, that, uh, the viable interest, interested market. Yeah, right? sure. And, and so, so for, for, for me, the stuff I, I, I grow with today more than ever, and, and, and this, the place where I have the most success are, where those customers know me and know our team and trust us 100%, yep. right? They, they, know, they know they've got what you said, you know, as far as that, that uh, honesty to a fault. I'm not, you know, life is too short right. and our relationships are our most important thing. We're not going to be BSing anybody. We're, you know, we, we, want, we want to be out for their best, best interest first and, and you, better be on, you better have that, uh, that honesty. And so, so for me, the, the relationships I built in the past have been awesome for my, my future and the future. Sure. That's a lot of fun. So yeah, I got, I've got a couple. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna b- bounce off you in the near future. So. Yeah, my pleasure. I'd love to. And and the one good thing is, you know, and, and this is what I always say about ideas. I never kill ideas, all right, because usually even the bad ideas. Not saying your ideas will be bad, but usually even the bad ideas end up leading to good ideas in some way. So long as you don't stop along that path, you know. As a as a kid, I had ideas crushed. I know what that's like. And I know what it's like to, you know, just keep going and say, screw it. So I try not to kill ideas. I try to figure out a path to actually make that happen. Yeah, the path might change. You might pivot, right? When, when you run up, up, up you know, roll, the road. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I think uh, you're exactly right. You know, if you stop because somebody crushes your dream with, with, with a conversation or, or, or uh, you know, bad business relationship crushes you, gosh, you got to, you know, pick yourself up and get back after it, right? That's everything. Never give up, period, regardless of the circumstance. And that's what people forget. Regardless of the circumstances, you don't stop. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I've been crushed many times before. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it, if you learn from it, if you look at it as a lesson, it's all good, right? I mean, that's painful temporarily, sometimes a little longer than temporarily, depending on what it costs you, right? Um, but sure. But look back at every bad experience as a, as a blessing instead of a crutch, I think it works out pretty well. Uh, but, that, so, that's also uh, that. I want, sorry, Gary. I was going to say that's that wisdom thing, though, that comes with time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Robbie, uh, I hope you're listening to all this, dude, because uh, there's there's a lot of nuggets here, man. What what uh, what do you feel you got out of this? Yeah, a thousand percent. Well, I'll I'll jump to the takeaways in a minute here. Uh, but I think first and foremost, the part that strikes me as interesting is the way that we've gone to market with site so far is actually indirectly a micro version of Vim by partnering with companies like a Prologis and a Walmart and exactly. that vested interest where we're working back and forth to tailoring the right solution to them. And it, it wasn't perfect at first, a thousand percent, we can say that confidently, but as a result of them having that vested relationship, we've understood what needs to be changed, how we can iterate and improve the solution and ultimately at the end of the day, grow the company Maybe it's through just internally at one of our existing clients, but otherwise just adding value to other clients in this space as well, right? Uh, so it's cool to see that we're actually doing that on like a, a micro, micro, micro level uh, with site right now, which is cool. But see, that's cool what you said is that, you know, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't supposed to be perfect, you know, because and I t- tell people when they're dealing with that, you're on the right road then. 
You know, if you're, if you're dealing with the imperfect and you're dealing with the fog and you don't have it figured out, that just means you're on the right road. You know, you're, you're not at the destination. That's part of the process, you know? And, and if you have the trust in the VIM, right? If you have the trust of the VIM, how cool is it when they're, they understand you're not perfect. They understand you're working through these things. They under, you, you have to look, look at their understanding as customization of a product for them, right? That's the best. When you have Absolutely. a customer, that's a great, a great custom, potential customer that you're experimenting and you're failing with, and they know it's part of it, that's really cool. And that, that doesn't come without trust. That doesn't come without, without you know, that, that honesty to a fault. Yep. And that's good. I had to jump in there, Robbie. Sorry about no, that. No, you're good. No, that's good. Um, so I really just have one question, then I want to be conscious of your time, Chris. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so my question is, when I'm thinking back to your early days or your roots of as you uh, were exploring your entrepreneurial side of yourself, uh, it started with the flyer on the car. And then it navigated into uh, an early version of the digital marketing and VA. Sure. Uh, and then you mentioned with the uh, low carb uh, muffins that that ultimately grew as a result of an article that was shared yeah. uh, through, via a publication. And now as I'm looking at Gusher, what I'm recognizing is that you're leaning really heavily on the relationships that either you have or you know how to find. Uh, and so me personally, I'm obviously working um, pretty heavily with Gary on sales and marketing for all of our businesses and how I can most effectively help. Um, so I've always thought about how the best ways to go to market and how do we ultimately grow the business. And the biggest barrier to entry are those upfront conversations. Yep. Being able to land the first meeting, right? Uh, so I guess I'm curious from your perspective, what is it marketing? Is it sales? Is it leaning on relationships? Uh, what what would be the most effective way to do that? The most effective way this time, at this time in, in history, all right, is the following. This is not what would have been done five, 10 years ago. It's not what would have been done 20 years ago uh, because the information wasn't readily available. What I would do primarily right now, if I'm trying to go ahead and, and increase the sales in any way, shape, or fashion, I would literally go ahead and figure out, yes, who the VIM is, who the vested interest market is. That's the first thing, who the vested interest market is. That's number one. But number two, what I would then do is do as much research background as possible until I can find certain common talking points on them. So it's what I call the onion. You're going to go ahead and find out their background information. Uh, you're going to go ahead and see if there's a common uh, point there of uh, vernacular in some way. You know, with Gary, Gary grew up in Illinois and, or wherever it may be, uh, back where there may be corn or soybeans grown in the middle of nowhere. And I grew up in Ohio. Uh, and right off the bat, there's just a certain Midwestern thing there, uh, no matter what, that you're going to be able to shortchange it. So there's a certain vernacular I can use. But what I would then do is once I find out some type of common point of communication, obviously you reach out, you connect, you do whatever can in that way uh, via LinkedIn or whatever methodology there is. Uh, but I need to get face to face as soon as humanly possible. So if I'm not able to, to go ahead and meet that person physically face to face, I will send an asynchronous video message directly to that person in some way that's between 30 to 90 seconds long uh, that goes ahead and does very specific touch points on their background so that they know that I've spent time on them specifically and that it's not just some mass marketing piece. And that seems to cut through all the clutter right off the bat. That's something that's like hot knife through warm butter stuff. 
So, and I don't care what vertical it is. I don't care who the person is. I don't care what it is. So if I go ahead and I research somebody and I find out, okay, well, they did a Boy Scout troop back in, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there's a talking point. If I found out they grew up in the Midwest, there's lots of talking points. If I find out, okay, they eat sushi or they do whatever, there's talking points. There has to be some way to be able to relate to that person to bring it back. The vast majority of people are not transactional. The vast majority of people are open to something that they're, I don't want to say they have no defenses against, but they have no defenses against personally tailored messages to them or opening up in a sincere way, not in a sociopath way. Okay. So. Awesome. Are you familiar with the tool of Vidyard? Vidyard? I don't know. They're in violation of my patents because I have all the patents on asynchronous video messaging. Oh, nice. Yeah, I would say that's definitely what yeah, I forgot doing. to cover that. But anyway, yeah, look, yeah, look, look them up. There you go. You can go into a little bit of a, a legal dispute there. Um, no, that was perfect. Trust me, we already got with Facebook and let's see what's well, Snapchat and everything else. Right. Uh, but no, thank you. Uh, that was actually one of the things that I have on my to do list right now is looking into a video solution like that. Uh, because I do think that there's just too much clutter going on right now. In we, we use Loom or I use Loom and I've taught other people this. All the founders do it. Um, it's almost 100% effective rate. It's crazy. Will it be like this two, three, four, five years from now? Probably not. It'll be the next evolution of it. But for right now, there's a market aberration. Uh, people don't like to create videos uh, in terms of messages. Uh, they're uncomfortable with it. They're, however, what they don't realize is that if you do 30 to 50 of them, you have it mastered. And, you know, I had a company called Movi, which was the first at it, uh, that with asynchronous video messaging. And we found that exact pattern. About 30 to 50 times that you do it, you suddenly master it. But it's also identifying those targets, but the video works. So something as simple as use Loom, you know, or excuse me, Loom, L-O-O-M, uh, they're very good for utilizing on LinkedIn because their images render uh, effectively in their uh, stuff. Kind of like what I sent you guys. Uh, you went ahead and asked me to do something. I sent you a video message back after I did it. It resonated a certain way. You felt you knew me right off the bat and you said, okay, that, that is somebody that will definitely go ahead and have on the exact same thing. That that's what cuts through all the clutter. Absolutely. I was, I was, uh, I loved it. I loved your, your video response. It was really cool. Definitely. Yeah. I was like, Whoa, that's different. And I, the first thing I said, man, why don't we do that, man? That's a great idea. It works. It works for sales initiation. Doesn't matter whether it's COVID-19 or whatever the hell else. It separates you from the pack. It takes time. It takes way more time, uh, but the effectiveness is easily 10x, if not 100x, versus anything else. Right. And you could probably skip multiple layers at the company anyways by just going to who you need to. Any, so and that, The other dumb thing is... You start doing, I'm sure you probably know this, any type of social uh, out there whatsoever regarding your own content, not, not typing, uh, not imagery, video. The reason is when you start having meetings, it's, you got to view, let's say, if you're going to do any type of content creation as your calling card. It's not there to generate revenue per se. Um, I did it kind of by accident and suddenly, uh, literally, uh, it ends up now doing more deals as a result of me sticking out one video uh, per week than as much money as you could spend on marketing. One little video. We get deal after deal after deal. What do you mean? What, do you mean, what type of video? Okay, so for example, um, about a year and a half ago, one of my partners, I got a thank you note from somebody, and I made an offhand comment regarding thank you notes. And he goes, why don't you just make a video and put that up on LinkedIn? I had no contacts on LinkedIn whatsoever, none. I didn't fundamentally believe in it, etc. I was like, eh. So I stuck a video up. All right, suddenly got 7,000 views or something off of it. The next day, had one or two deals from it. I was like, huh. All right. The next week I did another video, got more deals out of it. I'm like, huh? 
The next week I did another one, started getting invited to speaking engagements, started weirdly having all these venture capitalists follow me, all these high net worth individuals follow me, all the pension funds follow me, all the uh, accredited investors, family offices follow me. And I'm sitting there going, you gotta be kidding me. I couldn't penetrate you guys for years and now all of a sudden you're following me, which is damn interesting. But as a result of doing these videos on whatever I talk about, I just basically talk about something in, in like a soliloquy type of format once a week for whatever I dealt with the previous week. Um, I not only get the views, but the relationships that are formed when you step into a room or you step into a meeting, they already know you. So it's, it's a shortcut. I have absolutely no viewers on YouTube or something like that. None, zero, nada. But on LinkedIn, they get tremendous amount of views and the relationships formed are phenomenal and you, you can't beat it. So you don't put up, con you create some type of content, whatever that is, but it should be in video form so your face is out there once every seven days or so. And that's what pulls in the relationships. Absolutely, yeah, no, I, I like it. I, I, I've not done enough of that, but I've done some, you know, some video stuff that for fun, just stuff, fun yeah. stuff for my, for my grand, myself and my grandkids or whatever. Yeah. Like I, I saw your golf video, I pulled down six, 7,000 views, bud. <laughs> well, I, I, and that's, those are easy, right? But I, my, my grandkids are better. My, my grandson, Lincoln, I pulled out 120,000 views on one. And then uh, another one, I think it was uh, 75,000 views with my grandson just doing goofy things with them, right? That's great. That's uh, fun stuff. Yeah, I, yeah the golf stuff. Yeah, that, that, that stuff was, uh, it's, you know, I guess it's common interest, right? What, is, what, 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 can, what can reach the most minds with some common interests that, that actually pay attention to it, right? Well, I tell you, some of my worst videos have resulted in the most business. So even, the, and that's the other thing, even though you may not get a lot of views on it or something, the business that you get from it, and you don't know when it's going to come, is sometimes sure. dramatic. So some, a lot of times my best, quote unquote, performing stuff, I get nothing from. And then the other stuff that you're like, holy crap, you know, this should be like my number one video that gets almost nothing on it. I get business from it. A lot of business, but almost no views. That's funny. Wow. No, that's really cool. I love it. I love it. Robbie, I, we start, uh, we got to start doing that stuff and getting our sales teams doing it. I love it. Yeah. Use loan. It works. What other, what other nuggets you got, Robbie? Uh, well, I, first I just want to make sure that uh, Chris has the time. I know we're already a little bit over Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good. But whatever you guys need, whatever helps you. I don't want to take up more of your time. All right. Uh, well, another question I have then is, as you, I know you mentioned that you have picked up on a, a commonality amongst all of the founders in the business, uh, having the trait of honesty, right? Uh, so I, at the end of the day, there's, uh, I'm assuming there has to be some other parallels regardless of the industry that they're in. Is there truly nothing else out there? Well, let me tell you something. We, we, we've done and we've done now a couple series of really in-depth marketing studies on it and it, it's rough. Uh, and that's one of the points about Gusher, why we're kind of not really worried about anyone doing a parallel on us or anything else, is that you can't just come in, throw money at it, and make it work. Uh, it's kind of like when Andreessen Horowitz entered the venture capital industry. They had to spend a ton of money just to be able to get deal flow at all, okay, based upon just that structure where you could target certain things. With us, we're dealing with, okay, not the market that's already in existence, meaning you have these founders, right? These founders are already going through standard VC platforms, standard angel uh, platforms, standard incubator and accelerator programs per se, standard university. But that's 0.0001% of the market. We're addressing that other 99.999% of the market that doesn't have that. 
So literally, it can be anybody. It can be a mom down the street. It could be a cashier. It could be whoever the hell it is. You know, just because of where they are in life doesn't mean that they don't have a valid idea or the ability to bring it to life. So the marketing side of it, if you can crack that, I'd love to hear it uh, because that's that's a bitch. That's a huge barrier to entry. Our stuff that keeps coming in is primarily referral based. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so then I, I guess my follow-up question of that, maybe there will be a little bit uh, more context to. Uh, so focusing instead of on the founders and the company themselves would be more on the markets. So I feel like given the landscape that you're in, you're closely in touch with a lot of maybe legacy markets that are out there, like the manufacturing space, yep. more of the modern. Uh, and AI has now been around long enough that I feel like that's no longer to me a, a brand new industry to be going after yep. be interested in a what you consider a leapfrog industry right now uh, that maybe has the potential to, to blossom over the next five, 10 years. See, I have, a, I have a fundamental different viewpoint of it. Okay. So with me, competition is a non-entity, meaning that I don't care if it's in the paving industry, if there's a tons of companies in there and it's a red ocean industry, because fundamentally I view it as the following, uh, you know, yes, you can go after new markets to create these new verticals. Absolutely. No doubt about it. But chances are your timing is going to be off the vast majority of the time on it, which means your cost to enter these markets is going to be substantial. So I don't tell founders to shy away, let's say from specific verticals because fundamentally their DNA is different. Meaning that the second that somebody else starts a company, even in that same vertical, they're bringing along a different set of DNA and that in and of itself is going to be a point of differentiation if they end up flaunting that and using that, which is by itself a competitive advantage. So I'm not sitting here saying, okay, well, we see AI as being the next big thing or we see uh, AR tied with uh, gaming with esports that now because of COVID is going to be the next big thing. Or hey, we see uh, heat sensors uh, and the identification of people at these events is going to be the next big thing because of COVID-19 for the next 24 months. The timing's a bitch. What we say is fundamentally, if you're creating value, uh, competition doesn't matter. Competition is part of what you should be involved in. So untapped stuff is a bitch. You know, and I've done a lot of untapped stuff. Untapped stuff is, is either one of two things. Either it hits immediately or you're in for a very, 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 very long haul. Good point. Very long haul. Good point. Yeah, I think the only trend that I've been noticing lately is the solutions that are coming out that are more in line with uh, building a human connection or maximizing a human's potential, right? Like an employee engagement tool or... Yeah, but here's what they're doing. They're, they're trying to quantify stuff that necessarily almost in a way goes against human nature and human interaction, meaning that you can get all this data. You can try to almost in a way force this stuff. If you're forcing it, it's not going to work. So then the question is, how do you collect that data and that information in such a way that becomes valuable? So for instance, let's use Gusher as an example, right? So we have insane data sets, okay, that what we're doing and we're in the process of doing is crafting all these different data points to then be able to say, all right, well, this person's got a 99% likelihood that they're going to end up in a series blah, 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 and end up becoming the whale down, down the line. However, that takes time to go ahead and be able to do, you know, so you know, I come from the Austrian school of economics where it's really the strong of it comes from the, the strength of the individual, which almost in a way is not able to be anticipated. 
okay? So you can do this in massive waves uh, in terms of just people in general, but how do you go ahead and measure it on that individualized scale? Yes, you can stick tech in. Yes, you can stick all these data scientists in. Yes, you can go ahead and determine that if your, your daughter is buying People Magazine in October uh, 2017, that she now has a 70% likelihood of chance of being pregnant and get in trouble for that shit when Target sends to your uh, home an ad uh, for all the different pregnancy and baby stuff and your dad goes crazy on you, which has happened. I don't know if you saw that article. So yeah, you can predict this stuff, okay? No doubt about it. But the question is, how are you going to use it? Okay, how are you going to utilize all the predictive analytics and how are you going to put it in a form that anybody can go ahead and do or, or should do? You know, maybe that, that is something that, that's a key advantage. You know, obviously it's a key advantage, but the question is, you know, even stuff like Europe, they, they put almost a complete shutdown on those data sets, you know? So I don't know if I'm making sense there. I'm kind of ranting a little bit. No, no, you're for sure making sense. I just, I've sensed it as a, a consistent trend. Whether or not I think it's the right trend is probably still up for debate. Well, I mean, if you're going to go that route, then the question is, okay, like let's use paving, all right? He knows who his market is. All right. He literally knows to a T who his market is. He, he gets on a phone even before he gets on a phone. He knows what the likelihood he's going to get to sale, how to go about doing it, everything else. So now I say the question is, well, if I'm coming as a competitor, how do I pop him off? How do I kill Gary? How do I go ahead and take Gary's world out and cause him pain so that the point that it, it, he gets his eye off the ball? So I say, all right, if I'm dealing with competitive industries, that information can be extremely invaluable because you're giving these data sets back that may be giving the Achilles heel or at least cumulative Achilles heel to cause problems for them. All right. And if you're able to cause problems for them, you're able to now, you know, step in and possibly take business. But creating businesses from the ground up with the data sets, I mean, it's going to be something that's standardized in some way. But take a look at Google Analytics and what a bear it is just to go ahead and extract any type of usable data from it that then it makes it where you get a usable action from it. Dude, I mean, that, that's rough, ugly stuff. So the question is, can you facilitate it? You know, can you, can you make it where the, the friction points of usability is there? That's what I see. It's not just a specific vertical. It's the information and making it actually something of value that's actionable, you know? Right. Rather than trying to take unstructured data and turn it into structured. Uh, yeah. I mean, they, they all talk about the data mining. I don't see anything really gratefully useful coming in. I mean, even if you look at retail, all they're able to do is determine products that are on the bubble quicker. And that's basically it. You know, uh, even though they have these multi, you know, tens of millions of dollars of retail systems in place, you know, if not more. Right. I'm not knocking it. Good no. stuff. Yeah. Robbie, what do you, what do you got for nuggets, brother? You like this, this, you know, Chris uh, spilled a lot of great stuff there. I don't think you can capture it all, but uh, what are the things that stand out the most in your? Yeah, I'll do the best I can. Yeah, so Chris, we usually like to summarize like just some key takeaways from the conversation. Uh, yeah, sure. uh, so first takeaway that I got was uh, in relation to your lipstick lady. Uh, and it's that you need to treat every customer like gold. Uh, Absolutely. They know that ultimately they're valued by you. Um, and you need to make sure that there's a human relationship there and ultimately have that connection. It's everything. Big time. And second point is uh, be willing to get your hands dirty uh, and build the appreciation for whether it, as you're scaling a business, the individuals who are on the front line or if it's just out in the general public, uh, you need to have the appreciation for others and show that humility. Uh, humility goes a long way. It really does. Uh, 
Third one is uh, specifically in relation to like how you had mentioned with the fad, but in thinking about scaling your business, uh, try to limit your risk as much as you can. Uh, and the relationship here was obviously try to not follow a fad and know that you're truly solving a problem as opposed to following what this potentially short-term trend is. I'd even say more fundamentally, don't build on somebody else's fundamental business. Right. And uh, I really like the the twist on what would have, what I would have considered a, a pre-MVP, but the vested uh, interest market. So moving that up in terms of a priority list, if you're not thinking about it today, move that to the top of the list. And Number one, yeah. Get that, uh, whether it's a, a brainstorming session or a war room, however you guys want to attack it. Uh, but there's a lot of different avenues that you can approach there and really dive deeper. And uh, yeah, I completely agree. It's everything is Vim. Vim is everything. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and honesty is the best policy. And the last one here is uh, that have confidence in yourself. So I've taken it off of uh, I am enough. Uh, and it's ironic that the podcast actually that we had right before this, it was another talking point there. Uh, yeah, but Robbie, you don't have to have confidence. The confidence will come and go. You just have to keep doing it. That's the point of I am enough, just an FYI. Well, right, but I think confidence in the sense that you're not just going to give up, right? You, oh, of course. If you go back at it, uh, maybe it won't happen this time, but you've got to be confident. Go back. As an entrepreneur, giving up is not an option. It's not even in your vernacular, not even in your vocabulary. Right. Gary, you got any others? I love it, man. I, you know what? I, I, you know, Chris, uh, you are the true example of an awesome entrepreneur, man. You sold sold Siege. You, you worked at uh, you know you worked at Arby's. Then you did the, the, the you know so many things: business, uh, brokerage, technology, food, medical devices, man, everything. It's unbelievable all the stuff you've done, and 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 it's 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 amazing what a what a, what a great entrepreneurial mind can entrepreneur's mind can be when when you really realize that it's all about you know just knocking on doors uh you know staying humble and and never stopping right i mean it's never it's, uh, you're, you're a true example of, of entrepreneurship and that's what that's always what we want on our show it's your ceo is exactly that it's 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 people that start most often with nothing and grow something substantial and do fun things in their life and and give back and your example of all those things man so i really appreciate you being on our on our on our show today, on our podcast, and um, I'm going to follow up with you because I got a couple ideas, dude. That uh, sure. you may put something together, and and we also meet a ton of people in business. I do personally, and in, in, in my business leadership groups I'm in, as well as um, our mentorship organization, True Mentors. So we're running across a lot of a lot of people with ideas, startup ideas, and all that. So you're going to be a great resource for us to help people out as well. Happy to help in any way. Happy to help. I can't wait. And uh, if you're, you're ever in Chicago, look us up. And we're in we're in the Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area, right? Definitely. We're gonna, we're gonna look you up too. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. Please do. Chris, we really right. appreciate your time today, and uh, and and the, uh, the, the 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 nuggets are gonna be tremendous for anybody that really want to they want to explore what entrepreneurship's about. So you're you're, uh, you're you're awesome, man. Thanks for everything, and let's talk soon. Thank you much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you much, guys. Until next time, Dish Digger CEO, uh, we appreciate everybody listening. See ya. If you enjoy this show, please share it with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com, for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at Ditch Digger CEO. 
and at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Lord, I was called the digger man Aiming for a living and doing the best I can Discovered entrepreneurship Scaling business plans Then I became the CEO man We're blessed to build a business in America Where soldiers fight for our freedom every day Dad's work ethic was taught from the seat of a gravel truck Rolling down Highway 31 Lord, I was called ditch digger man Aiming for a living and doing the best I can Discovered entrepreneurship, scaling business plans Then I became the CEO man